been a Christian for a number of years. <laughs> when I first became a Christian, I didn't struggle with that, could God save me? It was years after I became a Christian, uh, when I had been a believer for four, five, six, seven years, when I started to doubt whether God could love me. Uh, whether God, because I think it was, took me that long to figure out how bad things really were down in, in here. And then that question starts to rise as we get to know ourselves good enough. And how could God love me? How could God save me? Um, But it's not just, it's some of us who may be wrestling with that. And it's certainly oftentimes when people first hear um, and are invited. uh, How could God love me? How could God accept me? But the truth is simple. Um, He came to save sinners. He came to save sinners. And if we don't believe that, if we, we will never be unashamed with the gospel and coming to people who are deeply broken and struggling unless we believe that God saves sinners, broken, lost people. This morning we are in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. We're doing a series on, uh, on eight things that we need to believe. If we're going to be unashamed with the gospel, if we're going to be unashamed witnesses in speaking the name of Christ. This morning we need to believe that he came to save sinners. First Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12, we read this. Hear the word of God. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful and he appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed to me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And so the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we gather this morning not as those who have it all together, not as those who deserve anything. We know that you have come to save sinners. And so we throw ourselves on your mercy. We pray that you would teach us more deeply, not only for ourselves, for our own joy and satisfaction in the gospel and in our Savior, but also as we seek to be faithful witnesses of Christ in a world that so desperately needs the hope that is in him. We ask, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage builds in emotion and intensity as Paul talks about his own testimony, his own uh, embracing of the gospel, and it builds and it rises to this beautiful and high expression of praise here at the end. Right? Paul expresses his very personal sense 
of worship and gratitude. When he reaches verse 17, it's not part of a a discourse with these folks. He has been sharing part of his own as he explains the mercy of God in his own life. And he rises to verse 17 where he, he exclaims to the king of the ages, the immortal, the invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever, forever. What is it that prompts his worship? What is it that, that, that brings this out of him as he writes this letter and as he pens these things and as he builds and he feels that he needs to throw in this expression of worship? He's contemplating the abundant grace of God to sinners such as him. Right? For Paul, this is not an abstract exercise in talking about you know, spiritual things over here in the ethosphere somewhere. This is a very personal experience. God has, has done a work in his life. God has li- saved him from deep brokenness and lostness. And he's marveling what God, at what God has done in his own life. As he surveys the past and is, is trying to express the gospel, He marvels at what God has done. He marvels at the privilege of belonging to Christ and of being his servant, his apostle, considering who he was and what he had done. See, Paul was a great man in the world. Paul Paul is a smart guy. You can't read the New Testament letters and not understand that Paul is a brilliant man. Paul is intelligent. Paul is educated. Paul is passionate, sometimes in ways that put us to shame as we read his passion and stuff. And we wonder where our passion is. So we have this this intelligent, educated, passionate, rising star in the religious elite of his day. And he was. He was was a man who was on his way up in the world and in the structures of of the religious um, powers that be. But there's only one problem with Paul. He was in utter rebellion against Jesus Christ. He was, in, he was just in in-your-face rebellion against Jesus. He stood outside of the kingdom of God, fighting what God is doing in the world. It's interesting, in Psalm 84.1, as, as I read Paul in his expression here, and his, his marveling at God's grace that he should be an apostle <clears throat> I think of Psalm 84, 1, it's there in your bulletin under the first point, where the psalmist says, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness, to be a king somewhere else, or living high on the hog somewhere else. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. And he delights to be the servant of Christ. He opens his letters and says, Paul, you know, how many times do you introduce yourself this way? You know, Robert Johnson, servant of Jesus Christ. You know, called to, to, the, to the ministry of the gospel. You know, but this is Paul. He delights to be a servant. Better to be a servant in the house of God than a king anywhere on this earth. God took him from the tents of wickedness into his own service, right? Verse 13, he says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. A blasphemer, a persecutor. Right? He's a religious leader, but he does not know his God. Now, sometimes that is a plague in, 
in the church in the world. Religious leaders who do not know their God. They're not, he is not tracking with his king. Right? He, is, he is at odds with his God. He's a blasphemer. He had rejected and slandered Christ. Like he's a blasphemer, not because he had, he had in any way spoken against the God of the Bible, because he had spoken against God the Father. He's a blasphemer because he rejects Jesus as who he is. And so he persecutes the church, right? That flows out of it. He's, attack, he's an attacker of all things Christian. And then it says he's, a, he, he's not only a blasphemer and a persecutor, but he's an insolent opponent. If you look underneath that, the Greek word right there, and some of you would, would know this word, it's the word hubris. Hubris is a, is a word that is played large in Greek mythology and in, and in Greek thinking as a, as a kind of pride, right? It's a kind of self-importance. It is, a, it is an excessive pride and, and defiance of the gods in the sense of self-confidence, self-importance, egotism, you know, an inflated view of your own ideas, your inflated view of your own intellect and ability to, to figure things out, you know, an inflated view of being able to stand over and against the things of God. I know as well or better than, than anything that he could have to say there's this superior attitude that stands in defiance of God. That was Paul. Self-confident. And so he describes his life before he met Jesus many times. Here he just uses three words, you know, the blasphemer, persecutor, hubris, arrogant. You know, these are a fine collection um, to throw at yourself. But he describes his life many times. He actually tells his his testimony, so to speak, several times in the book of Acts and in the letters that he writes, he gives these glimpses into himself. And there in your bulletin under the first point, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4, Paul says this, I myself have a lot of reason for confidence in the flesh. It is self-confidence. You know, putting God aside for hubris, for self-confidence, self-importance. I was, I was, if anyone else has reason, I have much reason for this self-confidence. I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was persecuting the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Right? I, had, I was a rising star, Hebrew of Hebrews, zealous in the things that I thought were so important. It's interesting that he puts in his resume as a persecutor of the church in his zeal. But as he reflects on that later, Acts 22, there in your bulletin, he says, I persecuted this way, the Christian way, the following of Christ. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. I dragged Christians out of their homes and dragged them off to be imprisoned and to be persecuted and beaten. Galatians 1.13, he says, You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. Paul is a man who tried to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. In a real sense, Paul had been at war with Jesus himself. Right? He rejected Jesus. He attacked Christianity. He persecuted Christians. He was in rebellion against all things Jesus until Acts chapter 9, there in your bulletin, 
falling to the ground, he, Paul, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? It is interesting how Jesus puts himself in the, in the place there of the church. Paul is a persecutor of Christians in the church, and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? To attack the body of Christ is to attack the head who is Christ, the Lord of the church, to make war on Christ himself. And so Paul looks at his old life and the magnitude of his sin. And some of you may do that. You have your own list. Paul, Paul thinks he's got the worst list possible. right? He thinks he's got it, the worst list that you could have. Now you have a list. You can say the things that you have done. I could make you a list that would shock you. The things that you have done in unbelief. Things you had done in, in the days when you did not know him. Or even right now, you may have a list of where you live. Paul looks at his life, the old life, and the magnitude of what he had done, and he marvels at the mercy of God, that God should save him. You know, you watch a testimony like that. Not all of us have the kind of testimony that says he, we were where that guy was and what he was doing, and he ends up in prison, and how God intervenes to save him and to turn his life around. But, but to marvel, this is Paul marveling at God's mercy, right? Verse 13 and 14, he says, but I received mercy. Right? I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace, the grace of our Lord overflowed. Right? It means just what it means in the Greek. It means to overflow something. He says, the grace of, and mercy of God overflowed into my life. To my life. Killer of Christians. Right? Persecutor of Christ and his church. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is a deeply personal experience for Paul. It reminds me of Romans chapter 5 when Paul is writing here. He's writing more personally. In Romans 5, he's writing that great theological treatise. If you read the book of Romans, and Romans 1 through 3, he is... He is um, detailing the fallenness of our world, the brokenness of humanity, so that he summarized the end of that section that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And as he reaches and starts talking about faith and the hope that is in Christ, and he reaches the end of chapter 5, he makes the statement that is there in your bolt in Romans 5.20 under your second point. He says, where sin had increased, where, where sin got to be great and abundant in the world, and in people's lives, in your life, where sin increased, he says, grace abounded all the more. In the Greek there, it's, it, it, it hooper abounded, it, it super abounded, it, it, it over abounded. Where your sin was great, he says, God's grace was greater. Right? And we sing those hymns, greater than all my sin. Where sin was great, where sin abounded, grace super abounded. Grace and mercy of Jesus is greater still. And he says, and it flowed into my life. I thought my, you know, my sin was so terrible. And he says, but God's grace saves me. And so when he gets to verse 15, which is the central thought, not only of this section, I would say it's not only the central thought here, but of the entire New Testament. Right? This is the central thought. When he gets there, this is very personal for Paul. It's a trustworthy saying. Because Paul knows it in his own life, in his own experience. So in verse 15, he says, The trustworthy and 
saying that is deserving of all acceptance. Take it from me. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the foremost. Right, for Paul, this is not a mere formula. This is unshakable truth. This is life-changing truth. This is, this is what invaded his life and literally transformed him into a completely different human being. This is, this is a truth that has come into his life and turned his world upside down. It is reliable. It is dependable. This is a truth you can bank on. Jesus came into the world. Right, and he came into the world. He wasn't... He's not born just in the same sense everyone else is. Jesus comes into the world. He invades our world. He comes on a mission and with a purpose. It is decisive. Jesus comes. He doesn't happen to be born. He comes into the world. He became a man. He lived and he died. And he did it all for this reason. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It really is an astounding thing. An amazing thing message. He came to seek and to save that which is lost, damaged, messed up, erring, fallen, straying, broken. People. He doesn't come for the good. He doesn't come for the nice people, which is sometimes the way we present the gospel. We really like to find some nice people to share this with, right? You know, people that wouldn't mess things up and, you know, because we got things in a certain way. <laughs> so we would, you'd make a great Christian because you're a really nice person. That kind of thing where the, the gospel doesn't, he, he says, the physician, he doesn't, the physician doesn't come to the well. The physician comes to the sick. It is a loss that need to be found. In all of this fallen, sinful, broken race, Paul says, I was the foremost. I was the worst of the worst. I was a killer of saints, full of hubris, blaspheming Jesus. And as he considers the overabounding grace of God in his life, he asks what you and I should be asking. Why me? Why me? Why does his grace, why does the grace of Christ, this abundant, superabundant of grace of Christ overflow to my life. Because if, I, I don't know about you, because I don't know you well enough. Well, there's a few of you I know well. <laughs> I know I don't deserve it, right? I know myself well enough. That's why I say it wasn't even five or six or seven years into my Christian life that I even f- figured out. It took me that long to even ask the question, why me? This can't be true. How can God love me? I know what I'm like. And as Paul considers this and he asks this question, you know, was I smarter than the rest? Does God, because Paul is smart? You know, is he, is he more spiritual than the rest? He just got a, a, you know, an extra spiritual bone in his body, you know, that makes him more attractive to, to Jesus? Is, it, is he smarter? Is he more spiritual? Is he just more open to things? Is he just wiser? Is he a better person? Paul seems to say, I was none of those. I was 110 miles an hour, blasphemer, perse- as to zeal, persecuting Jesus. You know, Paul says, I, he was not any of those things. And so why? Why? Of all the rebellious masses, Paul answers the question in verse 16. He says, I received mercy for this reason. One reason alone. Didn't have anything to do with me. Didn't have anything to do with God looked down and saw I would make a good Christian. God looked down and saw potential in me. 
You know, God looked down and saw the worst of the worst. Right? Verse 16, he says, I, I receive mercy for one reason and one reason only, that in me, as the worst, the foremost among sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example, as a monument to his mercy, a monument of grace, that, I might, that he might display in me his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe so that they would look at me and say, if God can save him, <laughs> surely he could save me. And he would want us to get to the place where in all of that we would say, and if God can save me, then surely he could save that guy. He could save, he could save the worst of sinners. Right? It's to display the greatness of His grace, the power of His gospel. And He makes Paul a monument so that all those who would be tempted to think, like you or me or the person that you talk to outside these doors, so that all of those who would be tempted to think, I'm the worst, Jesus could never save me. Jesus would never save me. You don't know what I'm like. You don't know what I've done. It doesn't matter. Paul says, God made an example out of me to set me as a monument of His grace so that all of your fears would be erased, all of your doubts would be undone, all of your excuses would be exploded. You would look and say, God saves sinners, the worst of the worst. Came into the world not to help those who help themselves, to save those who cannot save themselves. Psalm 25.11, there in your bulletin, the psalmist says, It is for your name's sake, O Yahweh, your name's sake, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And if you have to pardon it because of my deserving, it will never be pardoned. If you have to pardon it because of something you see in me, it will never be pardoned. His cry, his hope, is it for your name's sake, for the display of your glory, for the, for the honor of your mercy and who you are as the God of salvation. Forgive my sin because it is great. And it's going to take a great God, a great God of mercy to lift me out of the miry pit and to set my feet on a rock. Paul's point is for a person who's so spiritually blind, so lost, so full of himself, so anti-Jesus, that if he can find Jesus, then no one, no one is beyond God's mercy. There's no one beyond God's mercy. And I ask you this morning, do you believe that? You ever look at people, you see them sitting on the side of the road, you pass them downtown, you work with them. Maybe you live with them. And you think, no way. And I truly, I told you that last week, I think, I mean, that was me. And if you had lived with me, you would have thought, no way. If you, if you were the, saw that guy that we just saw that moving testimony of, we would have said, no way. He's a convict. He's a drug addict. Oh, but the mercy of God superabounded. Superabounded. 
the greatness of God's mercy gloriously displayed in the conversion of people who don't deserve it, of people who would be lost unless God were to save them unilaterally and powerfully and wonderfully move in and do something for them that they could not do for themselves, could never earn, could never deserve, could never merit, and simply by His mercy. What made the difference for Paul was not that he got his life together. See, some of us think that way. I'll just get my life together. And then Paul was not a seeker after Jesus. It was the sovereign, unconditional, amazing grace of God that moved into his life. Christ Jesus came into the world. He lived and he died to save sinners. That is our gospel. All right, let me just talk four quick implications as we think about that. And the first is simply this. It's a word of comfort to those who may be afflicted this morning. A word of comfort. That we're told we should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So we'll start with the, we'll start with the afflicted. A word of comfort to the afflicted is simply that. If you're here this morning and you're afraid that God could not save you, if you were thinking, you know, he would never do that for me or, or I am, you know, out there and that this is beyond me. If you stand on the outside, God is saying to you this morning, here's a monument of my grace. I came into this world seeking and saving people just like you. Just like you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, from the worst to the least and to the lost. And if that's you this morning, he says, anyone who calls, don't. Don't hesitate to call. Do not insult God. Do not insult His grace by thinking that His grace is not great enough to cover your sin. Do not insult His grace. He says, where sin abounded, my grace superabounds. You cannot outdo me. You cannot evade the hound of heaven. He says, come Ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. So don't tarry till you're better. Don't think you'll get your life cleaned up. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me and I will clean your life up. Come to me and I will take a Paul, a Saul and turn you into Paul. I will take the worst and I will, I will transform you. I will do a work in your life. He says, come to me no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you think. Come to Christ. Second, a word to afflict the comfortable. Some of us think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We'll, put, we'll slap the tag sinner on there for sure. You know, I, yeah, sure, I was a sinner. He saved me, but... But it's not a tag that we keep on ourselves very long. When we hear that Jesus came to save the worst of sinners, the first person that we think of ought to be me. And if that doesn't, the first thing that grabs us, because if the gospel isn't personal like it is for Paul, you see how personal it is for Paul? that rises in him through this passage as he, as he marvels at the grace of God, that, that it would overflow into his life. That is the beginning of of all witnessing. That is the beginning of all evangelism. If the gospel hasn't overflowed into your life in that way where you think in those terms, Jesus came to save the worst of sinners. The trustworthy fact that he came frees us to be honest about ourselves. He came for sinners. I don't have to hide it. I don't have to lie. I don't have to dissemble. I don't have to pretend. He came for people like me. I can be honest about it. 
We're so afraid of being exposed to admit it sometimes even to ourselves. You know, John Newton's classic hymn, Amazing Grace, it's one of those hymns that you just think, don't touch it. Just leave it alone, right? It's good. It doesn't need any improvement. You know, a lot of mainline churches have rewritten. Well, you know, they exchange words. They gloss over words to make it more acceptable for the modern crowd. And when a lot of mainline churches now, when a lot of churches out there have really abandoned this message of the gospel, have, have rewritten Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saves and strengthens me. And then it goes on. It's saying, now, now there is strengthening grace, mind you. I mean, it's a fine truth that God's grace strengthens us to do all that he calls us to do. But he glosses over the point of his song where he is experiencing personally what Paul experienced and what each of us must experience. How amazing is the gra- amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That, that's where it all begins. The gospel. Amazing grace is amazing precisely because it saves people like you and me. Right? And it has to be amazing there first. For many of us, we have lost that sense of wonder that God would save us. And we never need, we must never lose sight of the fact that we need a Savior. Every moment of every day, we have the potential, if He were to remove His grace, if He were to remove His Spirit, if He were to withdraw from us for one moment, you could not stand there but for the grace of God go you and I. And isn't that what Paul says there, 1 Corinthians 15.10 under the last point? It is by the grace of God that I am what I am. This is always the confession. This is always that worship by the grace of God. I am what I am. And that's how he leads to this verse 17, right? That's how he gets there. That he should display his perfect patience in someone like me. Oh, King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Forever, forever. We should find this worship rising in our hearts. And so finally, to be unashamed witnesses, we must believe that no one is beyond the saving grace of God. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. But we don't like to be around sick people. And I guess just to conclude in all of this is to bring us back to the place and to say, where, who are the sinners? Where are the sinners? Where are the words? He came to save sinners. You know, so what, what, what does that mean for us? It means that we need to move toward people. And the reality is people who are hard to love, I bet you that guy who was, I keep pointing to the testimony, if you, know, you know, that guy who was probably hard to love. I mean, you remember the guy saying, and, and so I, I had gone, I tried to share with him, he moved toward him, and he moved toward him. And then his brother called and said, would you go talk to him? And he, and he went, he moved toward him. And I think that is one of those things that, you know, to love those who are hard to love, to love those who are in the midst of their sin. That's where you find them, right? We find them in the midst of their sin. And we speak a word of hope, a word of grace, a word of salvation. It's 
tax collectors and prostitutes and gang members and Republicans and Democrats and straight and gay and drunks. And, you know, and it takes all kinds in the midst of where they are to move toward people. People whose lifestyles we disapprove. Believing God can save anyone. And the harvest is ripe. And the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of anyone who would believe. Right? And we are his ambassadors. And he is making his appeal to the world through us. Paul says, I became all things to all people. That so by all means, we might save some. Who is the least likely candidate? When you see that person and you're walking around and you see that person, let faith speak into your soul. He came to save sinners. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we confess that sometimes we too quickly take ourselves out of that category. And so that gives us the freedom to look down on others to put up walls against those whose lifestyle we find unpalatable, difficult. Would you open our eyes that we might see the world no longer with the eyes of flesh, but that we would see a world that is ripe for the harvest and that we would believe in the power and purpose of your gospel, that we would move towards sinners as ministers of reconciliation. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.